2 Samuel chapter 1, if you have not made your way there. A rabbi by the name of Joseph Telushkin, he wrote a book years ago called Words That Hurt, Words That Heal. And so he gives lectures about the impact of words, because words are impactful. Uh, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 18 that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Words are very, very powerful. So he gives lectures on the impact of words. And so he asks audiences if they can go 24 hours without saying anything unkind about another person or to another person. Can you go 24 hours without doing that? A small number usually raise their hands signifying yes, small number. Others laugh and quite a large number call out no. Telushkin goes on to say, those of you who can't answer yes must recognize that you have a serious problem. If you cannot go 24 hours without drinking liquor, you are addicted to alcohol. If you can't go 24 hours without smoking, you are addicted to nicotine. Similarly, if you cannot go 24 hours without saying unkind words about others, then you have lost control of your tongue. Profound and true. Are we uncomfortable already? A little bit. Can I just give you a heads up graciously? Uh, that might be the theme of the message today, discomfort. So I'm going to encourage you to prepare your heart, not to hear from me, but to prepare your heart to hear from the Holy Spirit of God through the Word of God, we're going to be directly challenged. And we need that. I hope you've done the math on spiritual growth that it is impossible to grow without being uncomfortable. It is impossible to grow without coming face to face with things that reveal things to you about you that are inconsistent with the person and nature of Christ. And we cannot grow until we come face to face with those things and get rid of the excuses and the reasons for why we can't do this and say, God, I see it. I hear it very clearly in your word. I'm in. Amen? So please, I've done this long enough. It will be futile for you to get mad at me and think that I'm coming after you if what I am saying is from the Word of God, then it's probably not me. Amen? Amen. But if anyone had earned the right to say unkind words about anyone, was it not David? Was it not David regarding Saul? But in what is considered one of the greatest laments of all time, the words in this eulogy that we encounter here in 2 Samuel chapter 1 regarding Saul in particular were anything but unkind. 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 17, and David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. Also he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. 
The beauty of Israel is slain upon the high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Geboah, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty is villainly cast away, the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. We're going to see when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 1 very clearly that David was the sweet psalmist of Israel, and you see that very clearly here. Uh, He was very gifted in that regard. David and the nation were grieving the loss of their king and his son and the nation in battle. And in this eulogy, what we see very clearly, we see the amplification once again of David's heart being a heart that was after God's own heart. In other words, David had a godly heart. He had a godly heart. And so here's what we observe first in this eulogy. The focus of David's eulogy was national. It was national in focus. Verse 17, he mentions Saul and Jonathan. Saul was the king of the nation. Jonathan, his son, fought bravely for the nation. In verse 18, David, who at this point is unofficially functioning as the king of Israel, gave instruction to teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. David, like Christ, was of the tribe of Judah, and as we're going to see in chapter 2, this would be the first tribe to officially recognize and embrace him as king. But his heart here was for the people to learn how to war. The nation was vulnerable. They had lost in battle to the Philistines. They had no king. David understood how vulnerable they were, so he wanted to teach them to war. Instructions on how to use the bow were written in the book of Jasher. Contrary to a lot of lies and nonsense, the book of Jasher is not a lost book of the Bible. The book of Jasher simply contained ancient poetic accounts of heroic acts. That's all it was. Very simply, if God wanted us to have the book of Jasher, he would have ensured its preservation. He did not. So there is no need for useless speculation or conspiracies about a lost book of the Bible that only undermines the Word of God. It's nonsense. But the beauty of this lamentation is amplified in verse 19 because the beauty of Israel and the reference to the mighty falling referred primarily to Saul and Jonathan. That was the scope of his focus. David was poetically expressing beauty and grace And again, we can get that with Jonathan, but Saul, come on. What a stretch, we would think. In verse 19, David bemoaned the thought of the Philistines, rejoicing over the news of what happened to Israel. Not only did we defeat them, but we killed their king and his son as well. 
I mean, David, the, the, the thought of that, Gath and Ascalon represented the whole land of the Philistines. If you recall, when David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines in 1 Samuel 18, as was customary, the women came out of all the cities singing and dancing and giving praise for that. So here's David now envisioning that happening in the land of the Philistines at Israel's expense. I mean, he's grieving. The high places mentioned in verse 19 refer to the mountains of Geboa, where Jonathan and Saul died. Not having dew or rain on those mountains would have for sure created a drought that would have been devastating. So David was essentially cursing those mountains. Why? Because our king died there. Our nation lost in battle there. My dear brother, as we're going to see, Jonathan died there. So he's basically putting a curse on that. In that battle at Mount Geboa, some soldiers villainly cast away their shields. That is, instead of fighting bravely, they threw their shields down and ran like cowards. It was disgraceful. Instead of being oiled and ready for battle, David's, or Saul's shield, sorry, was no longer usable for battle. This is what David is feeling in this lament. This is what he's feeling, this is what he is expressing in this eulogy. He's grieving. But please, what I want to make very clear now, which ought to be obvious to all of us, would you notice, at this point, David was not thinking about David. He wasn't. David was not thinking about David. He wasn't. Most of the strife in relationships is rooted in our persistency to think in the singular, not the plural. That is at the root of most of the strife that we see in relationships, is that we can't think beyond ourselves. We can't think in terms of we, us, and our. Instead, we're giving to I, me, and my. Self-centered thinking, listen, is an irrefutable proof that we lack the heart of God. It's irrefutable. Irrefutable. David mourned deeply because the situation was grievous to God. See, that's it. When you have a godly heart, you are grieved over what grieves God. You're not indifferent about something that God says, that's grievous to me, that's disappointing to me, that's heartbreaking to me. You're not going to be indifferent about that if you have God's heart. If you have the heart of God, you will love what God loves and you will hate what God hates. You will be bothered by what God is bothered by. Romans 15, verses 2 and 3. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. 
For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. If we would decide as spouses, if we would decide that we are going to please our spouse for their good to edification, our marriages would drastically improve overnight. If we would just decide that. If we would decide that we are going to please our brothers and sisters in Christ for their good to edification, our relationships in the body of Christ would magnificently improve. They would be outstanding. If we would make that decision, name the relationship, whether it's marriage, ministry, name the relationship that, that I am premeditated. I've decided that my focus, my approach in this relationship is that I want to please you to the good of edification. That I want to do everything within my power to see you edified, built up, grow up in the Lord. That's my focus. Every day, every time. But you know what? To get there requires embracing and doing something that is culturally abnormal. And we find that in Philippians 2 verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Listen. Believers who possess the heart of God are deliberately and consistently interested in others. They are. They are. Including their spouse. Deliberately and consistently. Relationships suffer when we are more interested in others being interested in us than we are interested in others. Did you get that? They do. When you are more interested than in your spouse being interested in you than you are in them, when you are more interested in your brothers and sisters in Christ being more interested in you than you are in them, you have positioned that relationship to most certainly struggle. You have. That can only be the outcome. Listen, I've been around enough of them uh, to say this with a great de degree of confidence. Selfish people are the most miserable people on planet Earth. They are. Selfish people are the most miserable people on planet Earth. And listen, this is interesting. Because as far as they are concerned, they are fully convinced that the reason that they are miserable is because of everybody around them. 
They're convinced of that. If, 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 if my pastor would just get his act together, if my spouse would just get his or her act together, if my, if my kids would just figure it out, if my brothers and sisters in Christ would just stop being knuckleheads, I wouldn't be so miserable. If my boss at work was, was more reasonable, I wouldn't be so disgruntled. And my countenance is always dragging and falling, right? If people around me would just figure it out, then I would be okay. You see, what they miss is that the condition of selfishness is a dead-end condition. You know why it's a dead-end condition? It's a dead-end condition because it is absolutely and totally ungodly. That's why it's a dead-end condition. Listen, a selfish person lacks the heart of God. They do. They lack the heart of God. And that is why they are consistently disappointed, discontent, disgruntled, and disagreeable. David did not make this about him. This was about the nation. This wasn't about David. We continue in verse 22. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothe you in scarlet, with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. So from 1 Samuel, we see that Jonathan was very skilled with the bow. Uh, we see that so his arrows did not return void, and neither did Saul's sword. But uh, verse 23, when you know the history, you know 1 Samuel, uh, verse 23 takes us to another level as it relates to David being a man after God's own heart, as it relates to him having the heart of God. And please, if I can say it this way, spiritually speaking, this is where we separate the men from the boys. Verse 23. This is where there is a clear separation. On two occasions, Saul had tried to murder his own son, Jonathan. How dark and diabolical was that? And he ordered Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. Saul committed the full resources of his army to kill David. Saul knew that Jonathan was his best friend. You imagine your father giving an order like that to, to kill your best friend. Yet what did David say? 
Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives. What? This guy has made my life the worst nightmare for at least a decade. I couldn't take a step without looking over my shoulder. And he was lovely. Huh. And in their death, they were not divided. Although his father had become increasingly ungodly, Jonathan stayed with him to the very end and died with him in battle. And David complimented both men for their prowess in battle. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. It's interesting when the turning point in the relationship between King Saul and David was when David came back from the slaughter of the Philistines and the women came out and they were singing and dancing and said, you know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And that's when everything changed. But man, what is David doing here? He is calling the daughters of Israel to weep over Saul. Not, hey, this is my shot. I'm here, so praise me, I'm the king now. No, weep over the guy who turned on me because you were praising me and made my life a living nightmare. Weep over him. This was not about David. Would you notice the focus of David's eulogy was sacrificial? It was sacrificial. The focus was national. It was also sacrificial. Saul was evil to David. Evil. And David, had he talked about those things... You could say he ornaments of gold upon your apparel. In Luke chapter 7, I wish we had time to look at it, but a Pharisee named Simon wanted to eat with Jesus, so he invited him to his home, and Jesus took him up on it and went to eat with him. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus was there, she went to Simon's house and brought with her an alabaster box of ointment. And being described as a woman in the city and a sinner implies that this woman most likely was a prostitute. But she stood at Jesus' feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with tears. And she wiped them with the hairs of her head. And she kissed his feet and, to, and anointed them with the ointment. Unlike Simon, this woman knew who she was. Uh, this woman knew how sinful she was. This woman knew how desperate she was for the mercy and grace of Christ. So what did she do? She humbled herself before him. She 
prostrated herself before him. She got as low as she could go. She took a posture of worship and adoration. She didn't say a word, but her actions spoke volumes. But would you notice Simon's reaction? Not response, but his carnal reaction. Luke 7, 39. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. I'm not a sinner, but she is. And one of the most beautiful displays that you will ever see in Scripture, one of the most beautiful displays of pure adoration and worship of Jesus Christ, this was all he could see. That's all he could see. This was beautiful. This was magnificent. This woman, I mean, it's like God says, son, that, that's, that's the heart. That's it. That's the heart. Boy, I tell you, would you consider this? A poisoned heart can only see what is wrong with others. A poisoned heart can only see what is wrong with others. That's it. And let me give you some telltale signs. There are more. We don't have time. Let me give you some telltale signs of a poisoned heart. A poisoned heart dwells on how others have wronged us. We dwell on it in great detail. And we do it for years. When your heart's poisoned, you can remember how someone wronged you 30 years ago. And you think about it as if it happened 30 seconds ago. Verbatim. They said this, they did that. I mean, just right down the line, and you, you're, you're fixated on it. A poisoned heart chooses to only see the negatives in others. Can I just, for just a moment, can I just challenge the husbands in the room? In your home, if you are the type of man where you are constantly pointing out every, every flaw, every, every error to your wife and to your children, let me just tell you, you are suffocating them emotionally. Every little thing, you got to point it out. Oh, that's not right. That's not good. That, that's, oh, nope, nope, nope. Again, Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. As a husband, as a father, you know what you want to be? You want to be an encourager. You want to create a compliment culture in your home. You want your wife to know the things that you appreciate about her. I'm so thankful 
because of, man, thank you for helping me here. I really appreciate it. To your kids, man, great job. So proud of you. If the only time your wife and your children hear from you is when they've messed up, can I just say this? As a man, you have given place to the devil in your home. A poisoned heart refuses to compliment others. This is what we're saying. Because we can't see anything positive. We're fixated on the negatives. A poisoned heart lives in constant disappointment due to unmet expectations. Someone with a poisoned heart is impossible to please. Impossible. No matter what you do, it's never enough. Okay, yeah, you did that, but you still haven't met these expectations over here. And then once you meet those, I've got 20 more for you. You just feel like you're perpetually indebted to them somehow. It's never enough. Would you hear this? Would I hear this? Listen, someone with a poisoned heart, listen, does not have a single healthy relationship. If you have a poisoned heart, you do not have a single healthy relationship, including the one with yourself. You know why? Because your heart contaminates and poisons every relationship that it comes in contact with. Everyone. It does. We continue. Verse 25. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thy high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? So in verse 26, David now speaks in the first person. I am distressed for thee, my brother, Jonathan. The focus of this eulogy was also personal. It was national. It was sacrificial. But it was very personal. Uh, 1 Samuel 18.1, we understand why. And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Let me just, you know, I don't think I need to um, spend a lot of time with this crowd on this, but let me just make it crystal clear. There is nothing remotely homosexual about this in terms of what we see in verse 26. In the Old Testament, <laughs> uh, homosexuality was so egregious, and it's still as egregious in the eyes of God, that it was punishable by death. And given that this was a public eulogy, it would have been impossible for David 
to be meaning that. <laughs> Impossible. Knowing where God and where God stands on that. What he was conveying, though, he was conveying that the relationship that he had with Jonathan was as close as two people could be without being married. That's what he was conveying. Now, David does not eventually become the king of Israel without his relationship with Jonathan. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even survive the wrath of Saul without his relationship with Jonathan. And Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. This uh, refers to or speaks to how real friendship causes two people to grow significantly. Not just hang out together. Not just do fun things together. Not, not just share common interests. Those things are nice. But, but those things in and of themselves, they don't facilitate true growth and true life change. We're talking about iron sharp and iron. We're talking about two people that are unified and they are together on this. They are all about this. This is what drives their relationship. This is what governs their relationship. This is what their relationship is rooted in. This is it. If you haven't been a little uncomfortable today, I think you might be right here. Many believers have been spiritually stuck for years due to the lack of an iron sharpening relationship. Stuck. I see, I see it. And listen, I, I'm 50, so I know a little bit about people who are my age and older. The older we get, we can become relationally distant and disinterested. Where we intentionally build our lives around just, I, I, I don't need people. Not interested in being any closer to people than I have to be. And the truth is, people who don't have that iron sharpening relationship, it is intentional. I don't want it. I am not interested in walking that closely with anyone. See, iron sharpening relationships, you know what they major on? They major on accountability. That's why we don't want it. We don't want that. 
No, see, what I want is I want the ability to get off this road whenever I want to and then get back on it whenever I want to and not have to answer for it. So I have no interest in a relationship where I have to answer for my behavior. Okay, let me ask you this. If, um, if you came here today, and, and I'll just point out Kyle. If you came here today and Kyle was preaching, you would notice I'm not here. Right? Sure. But you know what? You know what you would be waiting for? You would be waiting for an explanation in terms of why am I not here? Is that not right? You would. Nothing against Kyle. I mean, he's very handsome, right? I mean, you know, he's a nice guy. I mean, he's tall and has this very imposing look, but he's, he's a gentle giant. Loving, gracious guy. I love him. We're discipling Kyle and Rachel, by the way. So, um, right? But I mean, you, nothing against Kyle, but he's not me. So Kenny's not here. Where, where is he? And you know what? That's called accountability. And I have no problem with that. I don't. But let me ask you this. Uh, should I be the only one in life fellowship that is held accountable like that? No. <laughs> no. Aren't we all accountable? Last time I checked, I thought we were. For whatever it's worth, listen, I have never witnessed life-changing growth in anyone who was not in accountable relationships. I've never seen anyone truly grow and do anything of significance for the kingdom of God who came and went as they pleased, not accountable, they do what they do. And that's it. I've never seen that person make an impact for the glory of God. Ever. In almost 30 years of ministry. Let me ask you this. What, what would you think? Are you uncomfortable yet? I told you. What would you think if every week I showed up at 9.30 just around the time for me to preach? I came at 9.30, didn't say hello to anybody. I stood, I took my pastoral position on the wall and just waited for somebody to bring me up. Every week, 9.30. You can set your watch to it. And when I'm done, I, I, I make my royal exit. Would you be okay with that? Would you? Jonathan, you know me, I know you. Would you be okay with that? Mark, would you be okay with that? Okay. <laughs> Is that, am I just held to that? 
you know, if we're going to be honest, the reality is for some, it's like, you know what, man, I'm going to time this thing just right. I'll get there right around 925. That's about the time Kenny gets up. I told you it's going to be uncomfortable. You ready? You want to tell you, I'm going to tell you what, you ready? I'm going to tell you what tears my heart out. This tears my heart out. That we have people who you don't know who come and sit in this very room. You don't know him from Adam. And walk right by him. Walk right by him. Not good morning. <laughs> Haven't seen you before. My name's Kenny. Glad to have you. How'd you get to Life Fellowship? No, I want to get my coffee, and I want to get to my seat. That tears my heart out. And you're going to tell me that we're going to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ when we can't even befriend a stranger in this room. Not on the street. Not on an airplane. They're sitting in this room. We had almost 20 visitors last week, and some of you want to talk to me. Or you want to talk to each other. And we've got almost 20 visitors in this room, many of whom did not know Christ. Is that God's heart? This is not LFBI on Sunday morning. This isn't about you coming to get your preaching fix. I am burdened. See, the reality is, is uh, people who do not engage in accountable relationships, you know what they do? They're very careful to engage in relationships that consistently give them permission to remain stuck. So I'm not going to challenge you. Even though I see the carnality, I see the dysfunction in your life, you know what? So I don't say anything about yours. You don't say anything about mine. We're good. That's why you don't grow. Here's a ministry leadership observation. People are as accountable as they want to be. The more faithful they are, the more accountable they are. And the less faithful they are, the less accountable they are. That is the truth. That's the truth. You say, well, my spouse is my iron sharpening friend. That's great if it's true. But see, what happens so often in marriages is that spouses simply give one another permission to stay stuck. You've got your dysfunction, I've got mine. Okay, we're good. I won't bother you about yours, you don't bother me about mine. Lori and I sharpen each other. Praise the Lord for that. But praise the Lord, 
for a number of men in my life where we refuse to allow one another to get stuck. This is the last message of 2022 in Life Fellowship. May I ask you, who is your iron sharpening friend? Who is it? Who's your David? Who's your Jonathan? Who is it that you are actively together day in and day out? You are pushing one another to everything that God has for you and for them. And let me qualify that. This is an accountable relationship that actively challenges you and you challenge them. You do not have permission to get stuck. We've got to go. Jonathan and David shared a massive vision from God, and it drove them. You know what Jonathan believed? Jonathan knew. Go back and read the story. It's beautiful. Jonathan believed that, you know what, David? You're going to be the next king of Israel, and guess what? I'm going to be standing right next to you when you get there. What a vision. Jonathan believed that so deeply that he put his life on the line for it. I love Lori to death, but I am as thankful for Troy Stogsdale. He is my David. We sat in that parking lot three years ago during Mission Focus. He and I went to lunch, got ice cream, talked, hung out. And we sat in that parking lot. We got back around four or five o'clock. We sat in that parking lot and we were talking about what God was doing. What God is up to in his life and what God's up to in my life and and what's happening right now in his life in particular, we were talking about that. I can see God moving. I think from everything I'm seeing, I'm going to be the next senior pastor of First Baptist Church in New Philly, Ohio. So we start talking about what that needed to look like and the steps that we needed to take to get ourselves ready. You go, what do you mean? Our, you're here, he's there. I'm there. When they were doing the vote to vote Troy in, man, I was on pens and needles. Lori had to remind me, she goes, you know they're not voting you in, right? <laughs> That's my guy. And so, man, one of the most amazing moments for me was to take Lori and get on a plane and fly out there for his first Sunday as a lead pastor of First Baptist Church. He tells me, man, I still have the voicemail that you left me once you learned that they voted me in. I listened to it from time to time. I texted him this morning. He was on my heart. This message, I said, bro, I want you to know, man, I am so stoked about what God is doing in your life. And I'm crazy honored to be able to walk with you in it. Whatever name goes in that blank, 
You are aware of it, and so are they. But if you can't fill in that blank, you have two choices. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you, please don't take this and just throw this and foul, you know, what is it, chapter 13 or whatever. If you can't fill in that blank, you got one or two choices. Number one, you can stay stuck in 2023, which will happen. If you continue to dodge accountability and you only want safe relationships that affirm your dysfunction, you will stay stuck in 2023. Or you can get serious about filling in that name so that 2023 will be different. Finally, You are who you are at this very moment. And so am I. You are who you are at this very moment. Because of the person that you look at in the mirror every day and the people who are standing to your left and to your right. Father, um, Challenging, I know. But Lord, we need that if we're going to grow. I do pray that we've heard from you today and that we would embrace it. In Jesus' name, amen.